Hi guys, welcome to the Revive Stronger podcast. I'm your host as always, Steve Hall. And this week we have another brilliant Q&A with Dr. Mike. I think this is the first time we've come on and chatted since the seminar, which went down incredibly well. And you've since been in Europe and you're off to Australia very shortly, right? Yep, yep. I'm a traveling man nowadays. So, And uh, the London seminar, I thought, you know, was I really liked it. It was really cool because we had a crowd of people that massive crowd um i was baffled by how many people showed up and also just everyone was really just pretty deep into the revive stronger and rp communities and it was just cool to see a lot of people that we like know from the internet um and uh they're already so they had their basics down so well that we could just speak in pretty advanced terms and everyone was really just right there so i think people got their monies out of that yeah, we've only had really positive feedback and having reviewed the footage that we filmed, which is really cool uh, and really high quality. We're really happy with that. It's just like, it just makes it all really obvious how well all of you guys presented. Uh, it, was, it was really great. Oh, stop. Well, thanks so much. <laughs> right. So we will get straight to the questions. And the first question is from Ryan Beaver. Um, he is a Patreon supporter. So thank you, Ryan. He has asked, Sunken Cheeks. Is that a sign your prep went horribly wrong? Malnutrition, question mark, or are some people just more prone to it? This is the second prep for me, and he thinks things went well. Um, and in the first prep, he had a way more skeletal look. Huh. Um, you know, most people actually have the opposite view of that, where if you don't have the skeletal face, you're not lean. The most general thing I can say about that is you store fat in your face physically. Everyone does to some extent. If you're Willem Dafoe, then you store almost no fat in your face and any body fat, and then you just always look like a skeleton. But um, some people store a lot of fat in their faces so that when they get really lean, they just kind of look sort of normal. Um, but for most people, when you get to low single digits body fat, then you just run out of fat everywhere and your face will look interesting. Um, if you have sort of uh, big protrusions um, under your eyes um, and so on and so forth, that might mean that that's exacerbated by stress and lack of sleep, so on and so forth. So there's a version of Skeletor face that's just like Abraham Lincoln tired, gaunt face. That is definitely not a good thing. Um, but uh, if you just have Skeletor face and you feel decent, you just look lean as shit, I think that's totally fine and nothing to be concerned about. And really, it's one of those things that's almost a question that is most appropriate as a guest to where you don't know anything about the person's experience. So, for example, if you see someone posting about their prep on Instagram and you look at their face, if you see that they look really Skeletor out, you could be like, ooh, that's either really good prep or really bad prep. But if you're the person with a Skeletor face, you already know the answer to those questions. And however the Skeletor face looks is – so for example, if I told you if, – if, if I asked uh, – it was Ryan Beaver, correct? That was his name. If I asked uh, Ryan, like, you know, how is your energy level? Yeah, pretty good, granted that I'm deep in the prep. How is your conditioning? It's like, you know, razor sharp, best ever. It looks amazing. Okay. How is your hunger signaling? Pretty fine, actually, like not chewing on arm up. How's your sleep? Decent. Stress? Decent. Okay. If I told you that Skeletor face means your prep was going poorly, 
after you told me all that, what would that even mean? Like, it's just not, <laughs> right? Um, and then, uh, let's say you didn't have Skeletor face, and I was like, how's your prep? And you were like, it's awful, I'm going to eat my own arm, I haven't slept, I'm super stressed, I'm losing strength, my conditioning is I'm watery. If I told you, well, at least you don't have Skeletor face, like, would that make you feel any better? So it's one of those things like we're trying to use a proxy, a very, very tangential proxy indicator for something that we have direct, intuitive, consistent assessment on. How is your prep going is an answer you should be able to give just by how your prep is going. And the face, just let the face do what it will. I will say that sort of to directly answer this question uh, Skeletor face can be a good and a bad thing. So just using it, I'm like, so if you look at someone's Instagram account and you're like, ooh, they look skeletor out, like you can't tell if it's a good prep or a bad prep. It could be an amazing prep and you're like John Meadows, or it can be a really shitty prep where you're super fatigued and super stressed. Um, and that way you get that kind of look where you're just like just dying, right? But fundamentally, everyone's going to have it to some extent and it doesn't really correlate to much of anything. So uh, but just I think the real answer, the better answer to that is, you know how your prep is going. You don't have to look at your own face for that stuff. Fantastic answer. Uh, yeah, the only experience I've had with it is my first prep. I think I had the the skeletal face along with the drawn out, very stressed and tired look versus second prep. Same sort of facials, but wasn't in the same sort of tired looking type of face, which might be why Ryan's feeling like, is he in a good spot because he doesn't look as tired and stressed? Probably because he's doing a better job this time around. Totally. So, same I have experience. Yeah. yeah. Let's get to uh, Brian Grant's question, another Patreon supporter. So thank you, Brian. He asked, I generally train multiple muscle groups per session in order to prioritize my compound lifts with high rep accessory work sprinkled in. Do you feel it would be beneficial to intermittently program bro, bro split mesocycles for metabolite benefits? Or do you feel the high rep accessories check that box? Cheers from Indiana. Indiana, good God, we're a shithole. <laughs> I'm totally kidding. I'm only half kidding. This individual probably agrees with me about Indiana not being a great place. So <laughs> most of the people from Indiana are like, I don't <laughs> um, so the high rep accessories are exactly how we do metabolite work. The bro split doesn't offer any kind of enhanced ability to do metabolite work at all. So I don't see the bro split as being advantageous for that whatsoever. In addition, metabolite work uh, probably preferentially stimulates the hypertrophy of maybe not the fastest twitch fibers. And those fibers are uh, in and you adapt really quickly to metabolite training. Um, and it's something that you also does not incur a whole lot of structural damage to connective tissues because of the light weights. And relatively speaking, when dosed appropriately, you recover quite quickly from it. So it's actually better to do metabolite work when you're doing it in a mesocycle. It's probably better to do it more often, less often. So if you start to bro split, you're training once a week or twice a week, every muscle, and really once a week. Geez, that's a very not frequent time to do metabolite training. If I was doing metabolite training, versus super heavy training i would do metabolite training more often so like for example if you normally train heavy hamstrings twice a week if you do metabolite hamstrings you might train it three times a week because you know sets of 20 on the leg curl you can get to be in pretty decently recovered from that two or three days later where sets of eight on a hip hinge you may not be recovered for half a week so so i would say is the opposite advice probably uh and you know if you need more metabolite work just do more sets or shorter rest or more supersets of those 
uh, accessories, uh, and I think you're really totally good to go. And Mike, I imagine you get a lot of questions about metabolite work. Uh, we certainly do, and it comes up quite a lot in the Q and A's. Is there any kind of general recommendations or any kind of mistakes you see people frequently making? Is there any kind of uh, public service announcement for metabolite work that you'd like to give people? Uh, you know that, that that answer changes based on what sort of in, input we're getting. Um, I will say this: so first of all, metabolite work is not magical. It's not even clear that metabolite work has any specific advantages other than the fact that it lets you fatigue all the other motor units to where your fastest twitch motor units and the ones that grow the most become the limiting factors and then and then that's how you get at them. Although some good studies now on the fact that lactate potentially uh, causes hypertrophy directly. We know the pump causes hypertrophy, so there might some good, be some good benefits there. But it's definitely not some kind of magical thing. People hear metabolite training and they automatically – sometimes shift their thinking to be like, oh, this is a totally new thing. It's a totally different way to train. It's just training for higher reps and short rests on average and getting huge pumps and getting huge burn. Basically, like if you have a big burn, you're doing metabolite training. Um, metabolite training, another public service announcement is, and this has been shown very clearly, your body adapts to clearing lactate real quick in weeks. And it's not something you can consistently do for months unless you do it only like once or twice a week. And then for the whole week, you don't do it and once or twice a week, which is why if you train, you like, you know, you do like you and I are training now, Steve, like five to 10 rep uh, workout, 10 to 20 rep workout and 20 to 30 slash metabolite workout. Each one of those workouts is done once a week. That's a sustainable way to do metabolites for a long time. But if you want to really do a lot of concentrated loading of metabolites, it's only going to do like a mesocycle at a time, and then you have to back away from metabolites. Like, if you can't train with metabolites for months and months and months on end, multiple times a week, and expect good results, because at that point you're going to get so good at clearing lactate, and your muscle fibers are going to transition so far down the spectrum to slower twitch, you're just not going to be getting robust gains. What you're going to be getting is like the the amount of effort it's going to take you to get a burn and a pump is going to be incrementally higher and higher and higher. The amount of volume it takes to get there is going to be higher and higher and higher. Pretty soon your stimulus to time ratio, your efficiency ratio is garbage. Right, because like if you're really primed to do metabolite work, you do like two sets of tricep extensions, superset it to push-ups, and you're like, ah, ah my tricep, ah. right? But if it takes you eight sets to get that same burn, like, gee, may you might as well just go back to normal training. Um, and in addition to that, you know, it might be a situation where you barely get a burn at all, and then and then you just can't really just can't accumulate metabolites anymore because you're so good at flushing them through, and then all the benefits are disappear because you can't accumulate any. So it's one of those things that meat and potatoes of training is not metabolite training. You can do it every week if you want, just a couple exercises here and there. Um, but uh, definitely, if you want to use a lot of it, it's only good for about a mesocycle of real focus on. And after that, you got to take a step away from it. Uh, and it's not something that can replace conventional uh, training, I don't think. Um, and most of your training should be still really good stuff. And and uh, last public service announcement: some body parts just don't seem to be all that responsive to metabolite training. A lot of times, the faster twitch muscle groups. Um, it just not not a whole lot happens. Like if you have really fast twitch hamstrings or pecs or triceps, um, sometimes you do a lot of metabolite work and you kind of you know get a big burn, but then the pump's not that great because you just kind of get a burn and the blood flushes through and you don't really get sore, you don't get a mind muscle connection. You just kind of just feel tired. And some some muscles just doesn't work all that well. And for some muscles, it works super super well. So uh, it's one of those things. that's not like all training modalities. You don't just use it as a cudgel to just apply to everything. You got to be like, okay, where am I getting most out of this and the least out of it? That's where stimulus to fatigue ratio comes up as a real good analysis tool to say, okay, am I really, is this really worth my time or something else worth my time? Fantastic. Awesome. I think that will help a lot of people out.
So the next question is from Ryan Stone, uh, another Patreon supporter. So thank you, Ryan. He has uh, said, thank you for all the Q&As. These are great. My question is, I will be finishing up all the mesocycles in the RP male physique template soon. I will be starting a mass phase right after around the same time. Should I change anything the second time around to increase optimality? And in general, would Mike tweak anything with the MPT, given all the research that has come out since they were created? Yeah, a bunch. But once you start tweaking the MPT, the algorithms start to break, and then you, it's not any good anymore. Um, one easy tweak you can do from the male physique templates, and this is not – I officially have said nothing, um, is you can – structure the earlier parts of the week for the same muscle group to be a little heavier and the later parts a little lighter. So you basically just lie about your 10 RMs. You make your 10 RMs seem like really crazy high in the first part of the week and really crazy low in the second. And then the program's much lighter training and much heavier training. So you get that heavy light paradigm that we've been uh, doing now for a while. I think that's a cool idea to try. Um, and uh, make sure you switch exercises to have some real new exercises going. If you did an entire block of training, it's time to switch exercises for most of the time, or at least switch their orders. Um, and then also just be honest about your MEVs just, uh, because you're now, you know, not a beginner, look at those initial volumes that are programmed into the MPT and see the exercises and the all like set numbers next to them. And like, so for most people who use the MPT for the first time, do not do this, <laughs> but for people who have, you can you can wiggle the volumes a little bit. You say, okay, we've got two sets of flies and three sets of bench. Like, man, you know, my MEV is really just lower than that. So I'm just going to do one set of flies and two sets of bench or higher, whatever. You tweak those initial uh, weeks, the first weeks before you even do it, you tweak it to try to get as close to your MEVs as you can. And then you rate and auto-regulate. And in addition to that, uh, last tweak, and this, again, this is very, very, very uh, don't do this at home unless you really know what you're doing. So you're welcome. This is a Patreon supporter. This is a paid customer. So we got to give them a really good answer here because my usual, my actually the company line. And by the way, when you signed the document to purchase the MPT, you said you were never going to ask me questions about it. So it's illegal <laughs> already. Uh, right. Uh, so an, another little sort of thing you can do when you're very advanced is you use the volume regulation and you hit the plus ones and plus twos and minus ones and minus twos. Uh, then it generates the next week of training for you. You can reevaluate before you do that. You finish week one, you go to week two, and because you've done all the ratings, the week two is now pre-filled in with all of its set numbers. You can shit test the algorithms a little bit because the algorithms apply very well, but sometimes it's a little bit of a raw application. Like they'll increase both of the lifts instead of just one. So what you can do is let's say that you did three sets of squats and three sets of leg presses week one, and week two you said it felt great, so week two is four and four. Uh, you might not want four sets of squats and four leg press. You might be like, well, you know, I can really hammer away the leg press. It's totally fine, but squats, axial MRV is only so high. So I'm just going to do three sets of squats but five sets of leg presses. You can just go and manually change those volumes. So make sure that as, after you rate everything, now look at these and be like, tweak them again just like you did in your first week, not to MEV, but now to MAV. Like what's going to give me pretty good workout that's going to be one step of progressive overload above the last week? You said so this is a three. It's going to be a two. This is a Three, I'm gonna be, this is going to be a four. And just modify it a little bit and use your best guess. And you can do that every single week. Just uh, don't go crazy picking shit you like versus that you're supposed to do. Like if the algorithm clearly tells you you need nine sets of quad work, they'll be like, well, that sounds like too much. I'll just do seven. Like, well, how was eight? We're like, successful. Did you get stronger or stay the same strength? Yes. Did you heal on time soreness-wise? Yes. Well, like, fucking nine. Fucking nine. Steve, you and I did like a very similar workout today, I think, if I caught your Instagram correctly. Just a shitload of squats and – I just I did leg presses after, and I was like, I don't want to do this. Why the fuck do I yeah. have eight sets? <laughs> but like, 
it's just seven sets last week, you know, like that's how it works. So, you know, uh, when we say you can, you can sort of rig your own MPTs, you have to have a level of maturity and a level of responsibility about that. Be like, I know what I'm getting myself into and I'm not going to run and hide, nor I'm going to make impulsive decisions like 10 sets of everything. Like you're, you're using the algorithms, but you're just modifying them at the edges because you know yourself hypothetically better. And if you don't know yourself better, just run the MPT as it's written and it'll do, do a fine job. Fantastic. Yeah, I think that was a really good answer. And I always think it similar, like those sort of templates, it's like following a meal plan. If you understand kind of macros and the calories and everything, sure, you might be able to tweak it away from the meal plan. But if you don't, just you'd be better off just following the meal plan. 100%. So yep. next question is um, from Andrew Podzek. Oh, Potts, I can't say his last name at all. <laughs> um, he is Polish, last name, huh? Polish yeah. <laughs> he said, thoughts on Psalms. I think these have come up before. I don't know if you have any additional thoughts from yeah, last time. No, no additional thoughts from last time. So just a quick answer on Psalms. Psalms are effective. They're very mild. They work okay. Um, but the problem is that nine times out of ten, when you think you're buying Psalms, you're actually buying oral steroids or something that has nothing in it at all, and they come with all those nasty side effects. SARMs, real SARMs have very few side effects, but they're just not very powerful. I know people who are like, yeah, I did a cycle of SARMs, and I got these huge purple pimples everywhere, and my bench went up like 30 kilos. You're like, you weren't not taking SARMs. You took a bottle of something called SARMs, but it was probably methyl test or something crazy that's taking years off your life. So uh, SARMs are fine. They work. They're very exotic compounds, but they're just uh, currently most of them are fake. Um, they actually did an analysis a year ago, and they tested a bunch, and they were like 90% of these are just bullshit. Um, so there's an easy way to go about this, and by easy, I mean you know this is one of the reasons we tell people that if you're ever going to go, and it was just, you know, podcast is the United Kingdom, so it's legal to for personal use for various anabolics. Uh, I'll say this, one of the reasons why you tell people to not use anabolics, or if they do, use them with a great deal of trepidation and respect is – uh, getting to use the right stuff, there's just a lot of hurdles, right? It's not just going to the GNC and getting your creatine. So if you really want to know if the uh, SARMs you got are real, you have to send it off to a lab to do mass spectrometry. <laughs> uh, that costs money and it's fucking annoying and you have to do it for every single bottle. And if you want to do that, great. Uh, if not, then good luck taking whatever the fuck you got in that bottle. And then he had a, a second question, which was in terms of mesocycle length for an enhanced lifter. Is that, do you find that that's different? And he specifically asked kind of what's the longest you've seen someone go before requiring a deload? I love this question. So um, it depends on if you're doing uh, enhanced protocols properly or improperly. If you begin to use enhancement way too soon and in your career, and if you use way too much enhancement, so to speak, like you just run too much gear, you can run probably a year of straight accumulation and be just fine. Your joints won't be fine. You'll probably just have a career-ending injury at the end of that year, but your muscles will recover on time every time. You just get linearly stronger the entire time. People do this all the time. Um, if you start enhancement at the right time, which means you've milked out almost all of your natural gains, which requires roughly 10 years at least of training. Okay? At 10 years, we start to have that discussion with people if they're interested. Um, then uh, you use an intelligent amount of enhancement, which means starting with very little, then all it does is it allows you to keep running the same accumulation to deal with paradigms you have been, but continue to get really good results from them. So like you were natural and it, your results started going like this, and then you start enhancing and they just go like this, and like this, and like this, and like this, and just a steady slope, you just keep getting better and better. And as 
you uh, your starts uh, start to slope down. You increase the dose and or, or the degree of seriousness of the compound you're using, and it keeps you on this sort of nice little curve uh, going up. So the the real answer to the question is almost a way to figure out if you're using the right amount of enhancement if you choose to go this route um, or you're doing things right is like what kind of accumulation to deal with paradigm were you running at the end of your natural days? Let's say a four to one. Um, when you can no longer run a four to one doing everything perfectly, gee, you're probably pretty close to your natural limit. Um, then you begin to use enhancement to allow yourself to run four to one. When that much enhancement does not let you run a four to one anymore, you increase the dose of enhancement during the times that you're running it. So, so that your entire career towards at the very end of it, you always ran four to one, except now running four to one because you weigh you know, 110 kilos and you ripped abs, it takes a goddamn kitchen sink to keep you going four to one, which would make sense if you're pushing everything to the very fucking limit. So the real baseline hardcore answer is it doesn't change your accumulation phase length at all, if appropriately used. It's the same as it always was. Um, but if to whatever degree you fuck it up or take more shit and whatever, then yeah, you can run an accumulation phase really as long as you want until you break. Um, I mean, physically break, like parts of you start falling off, like torn biceps and stuff. Um, or you get into such health trouble, the doctors don't know what the fuck to do with you. Like, yeah, I'll be completely honest. Like if you just keep increasing how much trend you take every week, you forget what overtraining feels like, um, until you load up a leg press, do your first warm up, and your quad pops off the bone. And then you go to the hospital to fix the quad. And they're like, did you know that your blood is basically a soup of red blood cells at this point? And we can't actually do surgery on you safely. And you're like, oh, holy shit. Turns out I'm an idiot. So um, to people that say like, yeah, but on a, if you're enhanced, like first of all, most of those people don't even use enhancement. They're just internet troll fucking retard morons. Um, but the people that use enhancement, they're like, yeah, when you're enhanced, like you can do cool shit. Like, yeah, if you're a fucking idiot and you take too much gear, totally. But if you're not an idiot, enhanced just allows you to keep a really good rate of progression for a logical training plan with a normal length accumulation phase it, for years and years and years. And that's what real enhanced, I, I think, from my perspective, that's what enhancement really is. And you're poisoning yourself, might as well be for a good cause, like becoming a goddamn superhero, years later of really, really good training. That's what enhancement, in my view, buys you. Not like you use it for a month and you have cool abs and then you go and get sick at a club and you go to the hospital. Uh, you know, that, there's my view on it. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. We get to the next question, which is just a bit of a, I, I think I just chucked it in here for a bit of a bonus question um, from okay. Scott Thomas. You, you'll see when I ask it, he just said, what is uh, your favorite European protein bar? Uh, and he also asked which country has been the best uh, for all your travels? Man, you know, so that's really funny. Uh, good question. So I'll tell you what, the, um, the best European pro – I can't hate on PhD bars, man. PhD bars are good. I will say something they do in Europe and Australia that they don't do as much in the United States is jam the sugar alcohols in like crazy. Like in the US, there actually aren't that many bars with a ton of sugar alcohols, and most of our protein bars just have regular sugar in them, which means like, yeah, they have sugar, which is okay, but you can eat it like four protein bars and be totally fine. Like you're not just going to shoot your guts out. Um, I tried that in Europe a couple of times and I was like, oh my God, I'm dying, <laughs> right? So shit really hit the fan. So there's that consideration. But as far as protein bars, the selection is really awesome. Um, it's, it's so, I'll say this, it's really tough to beat the United Kingdom on any fronts. The protein scene is amazing. Also, here's the thing, the United Kingdom has, if not the best, 
one of the best snack scenes in the entire fucking world. You go into a regular like, uh, you know, M&S or whatever and, and, and just like uh, Tesco's, you get these little sandwiches, like 50 different sandwiches, little chips and crisps and just all this crazy. Like you just get like a bowl of shrimp, just prawns. It's just like pre-made. If you just throw it in the microwave and it's ready, you're like, what? Like we do not have that in the United States. You walk into a 7-Eleven, you're not getting shrimp. That would be insane. Um, and it's all like super reasonably priced. And there's all these little like, tidbits like I swear to God, the United Kingdom is just full of snackers. That's why you guys <laughs> must not eat any meals at all. You just must snack because they're damn good at it. So if you're traveling and you love snacking and especially high protein snacks with like pretty good macros, the United Kingdom is just fucking amazing. Um, James always hates it. Like we end up spending most of our time at Tesco's or Sainsbury's <laughs> when we go there. Um, Germany, uh, my wife and I, we landed in um, Munich, Germany, the airport mini supermarket in munich had uh, an entire aisle of protein bars we bought every single one uh not all of them physical uh content but every one of one or two of each kind that was really cool the big protein block or whatever that actually i've seen that (laughs) yeah it's actually really good and a bunch of people said it's just a lot like collagen dead horses hooves and stuff (laughs) who knows (laughs) uh yeah exactly It's it's a very palatable taste but that's really good um so um and you know as far as like favorite places in europe i I don't have a favorite because there's so many magical things. So like if you want to see what like society of the future looks like, you know, Finland is probably the place to go. Um, if you want to see what like true economic freedom looks like, like Switzerland is me. Switzerland is the cleanest place I've ever seen in my entire life. I can't believe that place is real. There's like zero crime. It's really ridiculous. Um, and people have like a level of refinement to them because maybe because they're super exotic. They speak like 18 languages and just like, wow, like I feel like a piece of shit in Switzerland. <laughs> I'm not like royalty or whatever. And then um, Austria is cool as fuck. The people in Austria are sweet. Um, I will say Austria is really laid back. So like if you order something from a restaurant, like they may or may not bring it to you <laughs> at some point. Um, but people love to drink and they're really good at that shit. And Austria is beautiful and the people are really super nice and friendly. Uh, Germany, everyone's really businesslike. But, you know, you can depend on stores to open on time and shit, which is not the case in Austria. Um, and then the United Kingdom, I mean, the United Kingdom is like, I, it holds a special place in my heart because – I can listen to a British accent for an indefinite amount of time and just it doesn't matter what people are saying, it's just pure entertainment. I'm like, yes, <laughs> I want to hear more of it. So the UK is phenomenal. And to us Americans, the UK is is amazing because like that's our first language. So we go there, we speak English, like that's where you guys live. So you show up to the UK and it's like just like a bizarre world version of the United States. Like you drive on the opposite side of the road. You speak with a, like a different accent, but everything's more or less the same, and it's super easy to relate to people. And so there's my there's my summary of the places I've been in Europe. Um, haven't been to France yet. I don't know. I don't know. I'm not going to get you started on France, Steve, because you're English. You know, who knows? What to say. <laughs> but uh, um, I haven't been to Spain or anything. I haven't been to Italy yet. Uh, but I have been to a couple of the Nordic countries. The Netherlands is really cool. Um, the protein scene in the Netherlands is not incredible. Uh, but the food scene is really good. Uh, they have all kinds of different cultures mixed in and really tasty food. Um, Netherlands is just a beautiful place. Like you drive through this countryside and it's just like, like, wow, it's exactly what it looks like in the pictures and stuff. So, um, the protein scene in the United Kingdom, probably number one. Um, I don't know. The United States is an incredible protein scene, but the UK might actually be a little bit better. Um, it's a toss up. Yeah, I can remember visiting the US and I don't think we even really had protein bars when I start like I was going when I was very little and I like found protein bars in the US. It was like amazing. Yeah. For some yeah. reason we seem to have it's just exploded here. There's so many different types. It's just ridiculous. Yeah, hundred percent. Like in the US, like if you go to any 
almost any gas station, you'll have your choice of protein bars. But it's like four or five of them. In the UK, half of the, the stores are like, there's like 12 different bars. Oh my God, holy shit. Like, who eats these things? Because normal people in the UK don't eat them. Who the hell? Who knows? I guess there's lots of hidden bodybuilders. There. <laughs> I don't even know. <laughs> so yeah no i I think europe's really interesting because it can be really hit and miss with especially like protein and food you can go to one place and be like what like there's nothing and then somewhere else and it's like fantastic yeah like when we go to austria the just a regular store finding lean meat is really difficult like lean cold cuts is like almost impossible i was like everything is bologna like 20 grams of fat 20 grams of fat 20 is insane um, and all the food is super tasty, but it's just not designed to be health food at all. Where in the UK, you have all the tasty food and you have all the super healthy food right next to each other. Um, and so it's, it's a really interesting juxtaposition there. A lot of times, like, here's another one of my metrics. Can you get skim milk? Can you get lactose-free yeah. milk? Like, that's how you know you have a real advanced economy. Like in Finland, Finland is an incredible protein bar scene. And they always have skim milk and lactose-free skim milk and lactose-free chocolate skim milk. And the UK has a bunch of that. You go to Austria, you get like milk and then like heavy whipping cream. And they're like, what else you got? That's it. <laughs> yeah. You're like, what? <laughs> they have like 80 different kinds of yogurt, but none of them are fat-free. It's like, man, like the fitness scene. And there's like Das Gym and then there's everything else. Like, <laughs> Fantastic. Cool. I'm glad I asked that question. And the next one, I think you also enjoy this question. I think a lot of the listeners will as well is from uh, – Brandon James O'Donnell, and he has asked, Dr. Mike, in addition to knowing so much in the realm of nutrition and training, I've always been amazed by your analysis through logic and reasoning. Are there any non-fitness related people or concepts or topics that you look up to or would recommend to become more well-versed in that philosophical uh, side of things? Yeah. So the, the, probably the, my biggest piece of advice, thank you for the compliment, by the way, I take that as a great compliment. Um, biggest piece of advice is to read an article called critical thinking what is it good for by a gentleman named howard gabinesh i believe um and just to google critical thinking what is it good for comma in fact what is it actually the full name of the article um it's going to be like a 10 page article and uh it's it's the single greatest article i've ever read on the internet um and it's going to cite some people in there that you should probably follow up like it cites uh, thomas Sowell, who's an economist um and it cites a bunch of literature that people would find really fascinating um so that is a, a good place to start uh thomas Sowell and any of his uh youtube videos and stuff is a good place like if you if you want to see someone be just crudely skeptical to people's faces thomas Sowell is the place to go people say like well this happens and he's like how do you know that and they're like um Oh God, I don't <laughs> like, yeah, you don't know that you just made that up. So stuff like that, just a ruthless skepticism. Uh, then, you know, like, um, Steven Pinker is really awesome. I can't say enough good things about Steven Pinker. Who's our, our um, he's a psychologist and uh, linguist, and he's written a bunch of books on a bunch of different topics at this point, but all, all of his books are super awesome because he is so deeply rational and so calm about it. I mean, he doesn't attack people. He's skeptical when he needs to be, but he's super open-minded as well. Um, his mental toolbox is just about as impressive as it gets. So watching YouTube interviews with Steven Pinker, uh, with regular journalists, is going to be the most frustrating thing you've ever done because these people just impale themselves in front of him. And it was just like, awful to see him like try to pick up the pieces. He's like, so you said this, which means you're really saying that progress is bad. And he's like, well, actually, I said this, and that means that. And they're just like, mm-hmm. And they just move on to the next question. It's <laughs> embarrassing. So he's trying to have a real conversation, and they're just trying to get you know tidbits and yeah. little, little 
pointers here. So Stephen Pinker, somebody good to to look into. And uh, you know, I guess I have to mention like Sam Harris. Um, you know, uh, Sam Harris is very objective about most things, and sometimes not so objective. But we all have our follies. But he's a really good person to really start to get. Uh, if you listen to some of his interviews with people, um, gee, you start to get a real good understanding of what like logic is like. Because he'll point that um, that uh, that lens, that very harsh lens of logic, on a lot of uncomfortable topics. Um, and that's when you know you're being rational when you examine things that are close to home. Like you know when when Menno uh, posts a post that says that muscle damage has nothing to do or Dom's has nothing to do with anything. Um, how I react to that post in my head and in the comments really uh, is time to find out how rational I am, right? And my reaction is, you know, Menno has a lot of really good points and very may very well be correct about a lot of them. Some other of his points uh, seem to me likely or possibly true, but have a couple of impediments that I would have questions about, like blah, 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 blah. So you end up just having a conversation where both Menno and I are trying to get to the truth, mm -hmm. but we just have a little bit of a different view. And after discussing that view, we could both be better off. So um, I would say that that's kind of the uh, – uh, those are the people that um, sort of I look to in that respect. And as far as in the fitness industry, there's some really good examples – I always find uh, Greg Knuckles' uh, thinking is very deep uh, often, and um, uh, depth of thought is something that can be practiced as well, not just skepticism and, and logic, but depth of thought. Like Greg will say, you know, this is a thing, but have you considered these three underlying things? A lot of times he just loses everyone because they're like, well, I don't even fuck, I never thought about that. That's a real good thing to have. Um, Brad Schoenfeld is somebody that just applies that ruthless skepticism to everything. And you'd be like, what about this? And he's like, there's no evidence for that. You're like, fuck. Um, Menno is, uh, to mention him again, is really good at being skeptical about things that most people stopped being skeptical about. Um, he'll be like, you know, does spot reduction actually work to some small extent? And over a long time, can you spot reduce? And people are like, no. And he's like, here's three studies that say yes. And you're like, fuck, I have to start thinking again. Uh, and in the, so it's, it's really good to have a Menno is somebody who's like considered iconoclastic, in which case I think Menno at a personal level doesn't like it when people do this. Um, I think he's just very naturally skeptical and a little bit rebellious, which is like super wonderful to have in the field because if everyone just does this and we're wrong about something, we just get more and more wrong about yeah. it and then the correction is that much worse. So so that's that's what I have to say about that. Um, if anyone's more interested in this kind of shit, um, I have a YouTube video that's called Arguing to Convince and I think it's a real good place to start, uh, which is where I describe how you can talk to people and to yourself to really seek the truth more than just getting into incel troll debates online and mm -hmm. telling people they're pieces of shit or whatever. Excellent. Yeah, I can highly recommend that as well. And I think lots of things for people to dig into right there. And I think it yeah, more people so. to be deeper thinkers and more critical and skeptical, the better, because again, it just drives productive conversations. So, you know, well, for sure. I, I will say that like, ever since I got into this whole, like arguing to convince kind of shit, um, I've seen people who I know for a fact because they've told me, uh, seen these videos, have read these materials by me, use them against me, so to speak. <laughs> so they'll be like, well, you know, you say in this exercise, you feel like it works this muscle, but how do you know it doesn't do this other thing? And I, and I literally respond to them like, to be honest, you're completely correct. I don't know. It's my best assessment, but I could very well be wrong. And thank you for pointing that out. You know, and, and once you have a lot of people engaging you skeptically, it makes everyone better off. So it's it's really cool to see people getting more skeptical and less like combative because a lot of people think skepticism yeah. is combat like you know lyle mcdonald's whole crew of fucking insane assholes um 
uh, and which is mostly Lyle, but <laughs> you know, when you just like war and you're wrong because you're evil, like, you know, like, yeah, I, I, uh, like my whole debate with Lyle and all that stuff and my whole history of going back and forth. By the way, he still uh, harasses me over email. He sends me emails um, telling me I'm a piece of shit, and various other things, uh, to which I always have only one reply. He accused me of saying that the medical, medical science and sport and exercise journal has word limits, which I never said. And he said I said it in the debate against him, which I never did. And I always just come back to saying, hey, uh, do you have that uh, snippet from when I said what you said I said? And he just never responds. He just starts a new email thread later. Uh, but in any case, like, you know, being truly open-minded also means accepting the fact that people you fucking hate or that hate you could be right about a lot of shit. You know, Lyle's been right about a lot of shit that I've been wrong about over the years. And he's a very, very smart guy. And he's right a whole lot just in general, right? So when people like, that's like, you know, how, how logical are you? There's, uh, to me, I prove myself logical when people say, hey, what do you think of Lyle McDonald? I think he's a fucking scumbag, but I think he knows his shit. And I think he's right more often than he is wrong. But like everyone, he needs to be seen with a grain of salt, myself included. Like, yeah, I would love to be like, fuck Lyle, never read any of his shit. I hope he yeah. fucking dies in a ditch because he's a piece of shit. But like, he's, you know, knows his stuff and you can you can get value from him just like you can from anyone else. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a big reason people respect you. And I think that only further, <laughs> at least Trump's. for me, yeah, yeah, a few of us. And um, I think that only furthers uh, the field, the fact that you are like the way you are. Uh, and it challenges people. I probably challenges Lyle to be better. And I think you probably, and he may not want to say it, but you've probably helped him open his mind a bit further and like, even at least if it's his hatred against you to like really look sure. at your stuff skeptically okay. at least totally. it's helped advance the field in some way so it's refreshing to know um that you have still kind of the the respect for him for his knowledge so i think it's a great way to be oh <laughs> stop it we'll get to the next question sure, so sure. uh the next question is from douglas odom and he has said what are mike's thoughts on the routines used by the classic natural bodybuilders from the 40s and the early 50s for example steve reeves trained three days a week and would work up to 27 sets a week per body part yeah you know suboptimal right steve reeves is a guy who had an incredible physique but if you put him on an npc stage today he would disappear into the fucking crowd um take a guy like steve Laureus from today you put him in arnold's era he would probably outshine everyone but arnold like and this is a guy who hasn't even won the olympia uh do you know who i'm talking about uh, steve steve hall I, I, I need to look him up <laughs> Steve Laureus is an African-American gentleman from the United States who has a waist that maybe is like invisible. Has Jared and had a picture with him? Yes, he has. Yeah, okay, I know yeah. who you're talking about he's now. He's like a living god, you know? And he'd be like, I'd be really interested in how he's training versus Steve Reeves because he objectively looks better than Steve Reeves, you know? Like, so uh, how did the – you know, I will grant that the bodybuilders back then – uh, they did a lot of stuff right, you know. They did a lot of compound movements, oftentimes, and they'll some, sometimes sometimes they worked through more full range of motion back in the day. But sometimes they did wonky shit that just it doesn't make sense on the face of it. We have a lot of literature contradicting it. It makes no physiological rationale. And from my own personal experience of coaching and thinking, I think it's fucking stupid. Training three days a week is fucking stupid. If you want the best physique you can have, because even if we're not making an argument for more total volume, which we also are, training six days a week and spreading out that volume just means high quality volume, less chance for injury, less systemic fatigue, and a bunch of other benefits. So, um, you know, like higher frequency training is just better uh, in every mode of analysis that we've ever done. So like, can, could he get away with just three days a week of training? Sweet. Would he have been better 
if he did a more advanced program? Yeah, dude. Yeah. Like one of the things I always think about is like if if Menno happens to be completely correct about high frequency training and that the more frequency really is better, it would be fascinating in an alternate universe to take all the pro bodybuilders like just okay, no more freedom. So totalitarian regime. We're taking all over your lives and you're all training exactly how Menno says it would be really mystical and interesting if in a couple of years everyone was just way more jacked and you would be like, so he's fucking right. So then when people say like, yeah, but Menno fucking trains small people and he's not that big, who the fuck does he know? Like, well, looks like they tried it and they all got bigger. So they were just all fucking wrong and they were just taking a shitload of gear and eating a lot of food and training like idiots. And now, you know, like I'm somewhere in the middle of that where I think it's a bit more nuanced and I think there's, you know, there's a spectrum of frequencies that is effective and for bigger people, larger muscle groups, more fast twitch, maybe lower frequencies are a little bit better. Um, but you know, maybe he is completely right. So when people say like, well, the bodybuilders in the forties were fucking awesome. Like, and look, look at how they trained. Like, yeah, but the bodybuilders now are better. So we should at the very least be much more interested in what they're doing now than what they did back then. First of all. And, and second of all, the bodybuilders we look at now, we can't worship them. We have to take them very seriously. Like anything someone – like Rolly Winkler. When you see Rolly Winkler, you're like, I'm going to take very seriously everything you do because goddamn you're out of something. You might just be pure genetics or pure drugs. God, some, there's some there. It's oh my god, right? And if you've got 20 guys that look like that and they all do very common things, they might all be making the same mistakes. But boy, you know, I'd really want to check that with triple check, double check. I'm certainly not going to take a study or two on undergraduates that contradicts them and be like, that, that's it, they're wrong, science wins. You have to have a reverence and respect for them, but at the same time, you can't assume they're just right about everything. And so sometimes when people say, well, bodybuilders in the 40s and 50s, they look great, like, did they really? Like three or four of them did, and those are the guys in the magazines. And look at the average bodybuilding show. Here's a, here's a really interesting point to make. Look at the average bodybuilding show. Pictures from the 40s and 50s. It's a fucking shit show. Most of these guys don't even have fucking barely abs. I mean, it's just like sort of a fit guy. Like the average frat bro looks like this today, right? Like you go into a gym in the in the United Kingdom or the USA and like four out of five guys in the gym at a busy time look like competitive bodybuilders from the 40s. Like legit. Like if you dropped you, Steve Hall, into the 40s, you would be on the Olympia stage immediately. Like it would <laughs> just be like, oh, oh yeah, right? Like it's just a fucking thing, right? And you know, you have a fucking great physique, but like – you know, it's a different fucking standard, right? So the question shouldn't necessarily – well, the question can be like those guys, those champions that look really good, the stuff they were doing, what do you think about it? The question is uh, sort of an interesting tangent is, okay, we can probably assume that all the guys during that time were doing more or less similar shit, right? Similar shit because, you know, nowadays the bros all train the goddamn same more or less. Those guys look like dog shit. Oh, sorry, sorry, you know, speaking from the privilege of being in the 21st century, right? Um, and so, like, why don't we ask the question of, like, hey, we're the fucking asshole in the back that's, like, 165 pounds with barely their abs and, like, has trained for five years. And why don't we ask him, like, hey, what do you think about his three-day routine? It fucking blows, clearly, because he sucks, right? But, like, the average person sucked back then, but they all did the same shit. So if there was really some mysticism and some magic to that routine, don't you think it would make everyone good? Like, you go to, like, the UK British Championships and, or, like, you know, the British Nationals or whatever, and you you look at the top five guys in each weight class, and you're like, all these people have striated glutes. All these people are fucking jacked. People on to something. Right when there's so many guys doing some fucking shit that makes them look amazing, but when you go back to the 40s and 50s, you got Steve Reeves, you got like you know a couple other guys, and everyone else looked like fucking shit. 
boy, I'm just not so interested in what people back there did for training. You know what I mean? Like if, if, if that that's more or less like kind of to sum up, I, I hope I didn't rant excessively. Of course I did. But like, it's just one of those things where like, there's some cool tidbits from those routines, but we can make a whole hell of a lot more criticisms about them than we can make compliments to them. Uh, you know, Arnold and stuff like how Arnold trained, you know, like one of the things about Arnold's is they trained for like three hours at a time, supposedly like, that's just wrong. Like it's not wrong. It's a way to train that gets you great results. If you stopped after an hour and a half and came back later and did another hour and a half, you would just have that result. Yeah, I think you touched on some really interesting points. I mean, all the way from the frequency chat um, and to kind of looking at various other things. Actually, let me. You sparked something in my mind in terms of frequency. I think sometimes people hear like, oh, if you're an intermediate, like you have no right to be training more than like four or three times a week. Or people like put themselves into a hole where they think they have to do a certain frequency or they have to do a certain thing because they're not quote unquote like advanced enough to benefit from that. Um, and then like you said, some advanced people kind of reduce or they have the inability to train muscle groups as frequently potentially if they're fast switch and larger. I, I don't know if, do you have any thoughts on that kind of people like not doing a six day per week split for example because they feel like they're not advanced to appreciate from that is that even a thing and then i don't know if more advanced trainees is there any place for not training six days a week if you're like very advanced should you be maximizing that kind of taking care of those six days or do you think there's some scenarios in which four or five for the extra rest would be a, of a benefit yeah, yeah. i'm sure there's people doing that Totally. I, th I think it's primarily a psychological and a long-term tissue damage perspective that you can take to get those answers. If someone begins their first year of training and uh, tells me like their first three months of training and they're already running a six-week or six-day split, the quintessential question of whether or not that's sustainable is how much total volume are they doing? Well, it doesn't matter what your split looks like. The number of sets you do per week is your total volume. And if it's a reasonable volume, it's not in excess of their MRV, they're fine, right? But the next question you have to ask is, Someone who, if someone comes up to me and they say, I've been training for three months, I'm doing a six day split. I worry, Steve, like I legit, I'm like, Ooh, that's not good. Why? Cause that's how people burn out. And I wouldn't say that unless I've seen it with my own eyes fucking hundreds of times. I honestly, people who train without ever going on Instagram for three or four years and just do their own dumb bullshit and train three days a week and sometimes quit for a week or two and then train four days a week and sometimes quit. When they're trained five years and now they're training five days a week relatively consistently and they start to look into evidence-based Instagram stuff, I have a lot of faith that they'll continue to progress and that they won't quit because they came into it naturally. They auto-regulated their degree of dedication. But people who start with six days a week, can you optimize six-day-a-week training for a new perfect beginner? Absolutely. Right? Technically speaking, a very rank beginner uh, could optimize with – 14 sessions a week. If you know you really intricately design a program, they lived at a training center or something, the more the better because that's just a lot more technical practice you could give them. They could be that much better at the lift sooner and, and so on and so forth to become better eventually. A couple of times a week, if you were putting together an Olympic bodybuilding team and you recruited 15-year-olds, motherfuckers would not be training twice a week. You feel me? They'd be training a whole lot more than that. Now, at that point, you don't give a shit who burns out because you have an Olympic stack behind you and you could just replace them. So so it's a different question. So I don't think there's any real good physiological reason outside of volume control for people to be like, oh, like don't do six days a week. But there's a very good long-term burnout psychological reason for that. And the second part of that answer is if you are of a certain level of development, strength, size, 
uh, the degree to which you want to develop all of your muscle groups. Like you need to train your traps and your forearms and your calves. You're not just getting bigger through power lifts. Yes, there is a limit, uh, bottom limit to how many sessions you can have per week to where you're just not doing justice to everything else. Like if someone's like, yeah, I'm training for the Olympia. I train three days a week. Like what the, what? Well, you should be training at least, at least one and a half times as much. Like I'll put you this way. My bottom end limit for what I consider a serious bodybuilder who's not fucking themselves in the ass is four days a week of training. And that's like a very, very charitable limit. Like if I have someone tra- tell me they train, like we've had multiple inquiries over the years at RP of people being like, Hey, like literally there, there's like, why isn't there an advanced two day a week template? Why is it just a beginner template? Well, like you're not in, if you're advanced, you can't make games training two days a week unless your sessions are split up like crazy. Like, yeah, two days, but it's four sessions. It would just be like this ridiculous absurdity, right? So, yeah, like four days a week is the minimum at which advanced intermediates need to make gains that are robust. And they're just a real good shot at it, right? Eventually, it's five. Eventually, it's six. And I think that professional bodybuilders should be training optimally at least six sessions a week and potentially more uh, with two-a-day splits. Um, And the thing is, the vast majority of them do train like that. But every now and again, you see guys that are training I mean, at the pros, they're like, I train only four days a week and it's all about recovery. It's like, yeah, you're underdosing your volume. I could just tell you that right now. And these are the same guys that are like, they have like a huge back, but relatively weak biceps in comparison or smaller biceps. And they're like, I'm doing arms. Like I have a day for arms. Like motherfucker, you need four days a week for arms. Like that's why your arms are small, but they're just so stuck in that bro split mindset and that like balls to the wall failure every set that they can't psychologically train any more than 40 minutes. Steve, imagine doing a multi-set program with your five to 15 RMs, mostly on compound moves, where you had to go to complete concentric failure on each working set. Could you psychologically sustain any more than four days of training in the gym a week? Like going to the gym gives you heart palpitations at that point. It's life or death. It's fucking war. Hmm. But if you go in there and you do RIR training, uh, so on and so forth, it's sustainable. It's tolerable, right? So a lot of these guys are just trapped in that mindset, which is why they're like, yeah, man, I've literally had people say like any more than people who train more than 40 days a week aren't training hard enough. And it's like, yeah, by your standards of hard enough is completely yeah. agree, <laughs> but you're training too hard. So Fantastic. And uh, I really like that explanation because these are some of the things I was kind of thinking and you explained them very well. The other part of that question, uh, I don't know if this is something you can answer easily, but it's a question of when we are looking at, and people like to look at kind of, and I think you can learn lessons from people who are very advanced in fantastic shape, but, and we would be ignorant not to realize that genetics and drug use is involved and you don't know how much of like the drug use particularly um, and how smart they're doing that. And I guess there's loads of things surrounding that that I don't even realize how can you how do you kind of diagnose that someone is someone who isn't just i don't know fantastic genetics and lots of drugs versus someone who is smart drug use not kind of abusing them or no drug use and just kind of decent genetics but has some really good things to think about for training is there anything you can kind of identify anything you've found uh without talking to them yeah just, i don't know just observing like i don't know an instagram or if there's anything you've seen that you can yeah. take something away from some of them and others is just worth ignoring man that's tough you know how they speak about certain things um so there's a a bodybuilder in the uk that i follow we're big fans of him here james hollingshead hollings how do you pronounce yeah, yeah. that james hollingshead so Huge. his posts are mostly like 
we're sticking to the plan. It's slow and steady overload progression. And he's like, like he's entirely, like he spoke publicly about the fact that during his entire mass phase, he used a fucking glucometer to make sure his glucose was within line so he could balance his insulin and growth hormone levels. Like, holy shit. This is not a man who got to where he was just because he has good genetics. He's clearly thinking about stuff. He's correct probably about a lot of stuff. Sometimes we're all wrong, but like at least he's really worth a listen because he's thinking, right? And who's his his um, trainer is um, – What's his name? Uh, Jordan Peters, right? Who clearly, by the way he speaks about things, his level of analysis. And I disagree with him on a bunch of stuff, but he's a thinker. He's a sharp guy and he's worth listening to. Whereas like, you know, some guys, like their only posts on Instagram, like you look back and in high school they were already jacked. And now they're like 23 years old and they're 290. And all their only posts on Instagram are like intensity, fucking do it. And there's just like a video of their workout and you're like, Right on. Well, it seems like you got it all figured out, right? And oh, you know, losing the microphone, <laughs> yeah, <there>. kicking it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so you know, like just based on the way people speak, uh, you can sort of like comment on their their their, their descriptions of their Instagram stuff. You could be like, well, is this a person who exudes a level of analysis or not? And and fundamentally, you don't really know somebody's genetics. That's tough to figure out. Yeah. And, you know, you can't really tell drug use. Like, there's some skin tone stuff you can tell and um, skin quality and stuff. But, like, you know, and also just don't be an idiot. Like, of course, guys that are over 250 with abs are all on drugs. But then you can't tell how much drugs. So some people take take a boatload of drugs, get great res- results, almost no side effects, and they're totally fine. So you'd be like, oh, that guy does drugs properly. Like, no, he's just lucky as fuck, you know. Right. Um, I'll put you this way. This is actually it's a very somber thing to say, but I, shit. there's value in saying it. Nothing about what Dallas McCarver looked like, especially in the middle of his career, would ever tell me that I've been around a lot of drugs, uh, that he was doing things wrong. Um, he looked fine. Like some people have like their gut starts to get really distended and they just look like really unhealthy and they get interesting skin color and you're like, whoa, what are you running? And they're like, everything. And, like you get what's called a trend tan, which is like you, when you get a pump, you're beat red wow. and you're like what's your blood pressure like dallas McCarver kind of looked like that in all his videos his skin was really good it was white like a clear color like you could see old veins through it and stuff and you're like i don't know he seemed upbeat and stuff so but you know he was running a fuckload of gear like a bazillion grams of everything and and then it's kind of like so it's really it's really imprecise to be able to just tell that from instagram and then the next thing is like sort of who gives a shit you know like if they're running gear how do you know they're doing it intelligently well, then you have to – how do you know – which is, is it genetics, is it gear, is it the dedication? So really you get beyond the pictures and you look at what they're saying. And if they're speaking intelligently and they're, they're evidencing thinking, they're showing off that they think they're worth looking into. If they just say hardcore trite bullshit, then they might be smart, but you're not going to get any of that out of them. And then you got nothing. I don't I like know. I, I wish I had a better answer. No, I like that. That's kind of what I was thinking. Just like a, a, they're a thinking lifter. They've actually got some explanations behind what they do. Just like a coach. Like if you ask your question to a, your coach, you'd hope they have a good answer for you. But there's some coaches that just tell you to just do the plan. And totally. you know they're not really knowledgeable. Who knows? They, they might not know anything. John Jewett is another guy. He's an uh, IFE pro from the United States. He's, I think he has a master's in nutrition. He's an RD. That every time, like he has a, a, like he does videos about his workouts, he'll have like page long explanations about the biomechanics of every exercise. And you're like, holy shit. Like, 
I don't know if he's right or wrong, but goddamn, I'd, I'd probably want to listen to this guy versus a guy who does the same exercises, even maybe with good technique, because John Jewett's technique is always really good, even maybe with good technique, but they're like, warfare, period. And you're like, okay, I guess we're learning that war <laughs> happens in an air-conditioned gymnasium, you know? Yeah. <laughs> great um have we got time for one more question mike one more for sure yeah cool so this is from uh douglas oh no wait that's the one i just asked joseph kaufman and he has asked does mixing rep ranges in a single workout cause more hypertrophy compared to spreading it out over a week for example doing sets of 5 to 10 10 to 20 20 to 30 all in the same day or should you focus on one rep range per body part mm. so the direct literature on this with james krieger summed up very well is completely it's not even inconclusive it's like if you want to make the case that mixing rep ranges really is a hugely effective thing you have no case uh for sure in beginners who have been tested exclusively and it's like there's a couple studies that say a broad spectrum of rep ranges is better than a single kind of rep range but there's like six other studies that say that just one rep range gives you as much growth as any other number of rep ranges. Uh, now, it's, uh, testing this is almost exclusively done to beginners, which is fucking stupid because they usually max their signaling pathways anyway just by being alive and moving around. <laughs> so it's really difficult to, to parse out these specifics. Um, the physiological rationale that we can derive, so because there's no direct evidence that's any good, the physiological rationale that we can derive, pathway interference, we, we know that uh, we have some good evidence to say that uh, the different rep ranges may activate slightly different pathways. For example, we know from animal models that concentric training, eccentric training, and isometric training all activate a lot of the same pathways of hypertrophy, but all actually activate some different ones too. Like isometric training activates pathways that do not get activated by concentric or eccentric work, right? Which is really super fucking fascinating, right? And it also speaks to the fact that pauses and stuff are probably a good idea. That like when someone's like, what do you think about eccentric only training? You'd be like, I think you should do eccentric and concentric and also take some pauses every now and again. Maybe it's good. Loaded stretch, it's a good idea, right? So we, we know that there's different pathways being activated by a bunch of different modalities. And we also know that pathway activation is sometimes occurs competitively so that one pathway activity can impinge on another pathway activity, so on and so forth. So our physiological rationale uh, probably leads us to believe that mixing rep ranges too much in a single workout might have some downsides, um, actually, not upsides. Doing different rep ranges in the same week, probably about 50-50 upsides, downsides. And then uh, rep ranges periodized over mesocycles, again, 50-50 upsides, downsides, because like maybe it's too long to go without mixing, but you have a huge novelty reintroduction effect, so on and so forth. So I think that mixing rep ranges within a workout is uh, certainly fine, but uh, almost certainly is not uh, advantageous to just having the same rep ranges. And I would say some constraint needs to be applied, some. Uh, so our current rule of thumb between James and I is – we're very comfortable with – for the same muscle group, by the way, because different muscle groups is basically different training. Um, if you mix two rep ranges in a workout for the same muscle group, I think that's fine. Uh, if you mix all three, I think you're just trying to mix the soup too diluted. Like you might actually be getting some interference. And also there's like some stimulus to fatigue ratio concerns and mind-muscle connection concerns. Like, gee, three rep ranges, man, you got to like sort of restart the wheel of getting into the groove so many times that your most of your workout is just restarting shit. Like, for example, if you've really did a ton of multiple rep ranges, like, you know, sets of 30 and walking lunges 
takes a different level of focus, concentration, mind-muscle connection, and technique than doing sets of 10 in lunges, right? So like if you do a bunch of sets of 10, and then you do a bunch of sets of 15, and then you do a bunch of sets of 30, each first one of those sets is kind of like a recalibration. You're like, and the second set of it is like, oh, okay, I know what I'm doing. It's just so, because you only get so many sets, it becomes this problem of excessive diversity. You never settle in. You know, like when you do sets of eight and leg press, your first set's like whatever. Your second set's like I'm getting in the groove. Your third set's like I can do sets of eight all fucking day. This is great. But if you change the exercise or even if you change the rep range sometimes, it throws you off a little bit and it might reduce the stimulus to fatigue ratio to some small extent. So on those theoretical grounds, we say like mixing two rep ranges is fine. Like if you have a five to 10 and then a 10 to 20 or a 10 to 20 and a 20 to 30. Uh, but mixing rep ranges, any like all three of them is probably bad. And mixing the, the, the two very discordant ones just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. So like, for example, if you have five to 10 on the squat and then 20 to 30 on lunges after, it's like, what? Like, so where did the 10 to 20 go? Like, is, how does that fit into your week? You know yeah. what I mean? Uh, and, and so uh, I think that uh, there's almost certainly no benefit to within the same workout doing as many rep ranges as you can and some potential downsides. We want to limit that variation. And then we want to have potentially a good variation within the week of rep ranges and definitely a good variation within the months, right? So like meso to meso to meso, like if it's been a block of training, six months of training, your mass, and you've never done anything in the 20 to 30 rep range, I'm going to be like, you know, a ton of research says that grows muscle pretty robustly. And it also doesn't like active, it doesn't um, damage the connective tissues much, so on and so forth. So it's, you're missing out on some shit. Like, maybe not relatively speaking better shit, but like good shit that you just haven't right. tapped into. It's like someone who's like, oh man, I'm still hungry. And there's like mashed potatoes left on their plate. And you're like, why don't you eat that? And they're like, I don't know. Can you eat that? Like, yeah, you can fucking eat that. They brought it out for a reason, right? <laughs> uh, so, so it's one of those things where on the mesocycle, for sure, rep range variation. On the, within the week, maybe some variation, but maybe you can do like just mesocycle. And within a day, probably not much. Some is okay, but don't get crazy. That, cool. that would be my sort of point. I know it's not as exact of an answer as I could give, but I think that's what we know best at the time. Yeah, I think that's great. Um, thank you very much, Mike. Thank you for coming on for the Q&A again. Everyone always loves these, so um, everyone else will want to be saying thank you as well. And I, I just want to tell people, I was calling out saying Patreon because those questions get prioritized. So if you do want to support um, the podcast, that'd be amazing. Um, there'll be a link below. And again, thank you, Mike, for coming on. Have you got anything you want to promote or let people know about? Uh, if you're in Australia, and especially if you're in Sydney, come to Shannon Green's uh, Warrior Performance Seminar, where myself, Melissa Davis, uh, Gabby, uh, Doctor Gabs, they call it Gab. They call it Australia Gab. Like <laughs> on, the, on the UEBC schedule, it's Gab Fundaro. It's like <laughs> we'll see when Gab. Gabby's already an abbreviation from Gabrielle. It's just funny, like just this G. Is Gabrielle, <laughs> Gabby, <laughs> yeah, G. Eventually, it'll just be like nothing. The artist formerly known as G. Um, <laughs> So we're going to be in Sydney, and that's a really cool seminar. You might want to see us at. But it's Australia tours coming up, and if you check out my Instagram and Facebook, it's all over there. Uh, other than that, uh, Steve, thanks for having me on, and thanks for making uh, time for me today. No worries. Thank you guys for listening. Definitely check out all those seminars. Like I can't recommend them enough, especially the RP guys. Fantastic presenters, all of them. So take care, guys, and we'll talk to you soon.